Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truths from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 222. Today I'm joined again by Todd Mead for part two of Chasing Mature Adirondack Mountain Bucks. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. I am actually coming to you hot and live on location. Actually, it's not live because you're listening to this recorded, but I'm recording this live on location uh, on a scouting trip. If you hear some noise in the background, that is probably my heater running in the camper or in the uh, in the conversion trailer. 
And if you hear snoring, that is because the dog is passed out on his uh, on his travel dog bed, and is taking a pretty hardcore nap after he ate his uh, after he ate his dinner. Uh, Pooch and I packed up uh, this week on Friday, I guess it was, and uh, headed north. Um, I'm in and around the the Poconos, which is kind of appropriate for today's podcast, since we're talking with uh, you know part number two with Todd Mead, who. Uh, of course, hunts in and around the the Adirondack Mountains, you know, big country in, in that area. And uh, this year, one of the things I wanted to do was try to spend more time um, north of where I live, you know, in, in, in and around the Pocono Mountains, uh, you know, trying to find some pockets, you know, in areas where I might be able to find some find some decent deer and just, a, you know, more vast public land than what I have, you know, locally uh, to me. Um, and so just a little bit more room to roam, you know. I got here kind of late last night and got set up and I really just did, you know, some map scouting and stuff like that. And, uh, prior to getting here and, you know, really didn't have much of a clue as to how much snow would or wouldn't be here when I got here. Of course, you know, the area that I live in, we got a couple feet, uh, the Poconos, you know, of course going to have a little, going to have more than I had. Um, so driving in, I noticed there was a lot more snow along the road in certain spots than I had anticipated. Um, kind of drove into the area that I was planning on setting up to camp and, uh, you know, couldn't see much at all really. Cause obviously it was dark out. So I just kind of got camp set up, got up early this morning and the pup and I headed, headed out. And I had marked this spot on the map that I wanted to check out. It's really kind of interesting. You know, a lot of the area around here, regardless of what, you know, chunk you're on, whether it's state, you know, game lands or whether it's a, a, a state forest or whatever the case is, you know, there's a lot of, uh, topography right uh, but what i'm kind of noticing it's a lot of kind of deep cuts and kind of uh what like cliff drop-offs almost into you know uh, a stream or whatever the case is right so it's it's a lot of tops uh which is a little bit different than what i'm used to you know some of the areas that i hunt some of the other big woods pieces are you know much more kind of i would say similar to maybe west virginia where you've got a lot of spine backs and stuff like that where there's you know, steep elevation change and, 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 uh, it is huntable for the most part. This particular area that I'm in, you know, there's a lot of tops and the elevation change is really pretty sheer and it just kind of falls off. Um, and so it's a lot of kind of swampy areas on these, on these tops, a few clear cuts here and there. There's not a, not a ton of clear cuts. Um, I did my homework of course, and like went and was, you know, checking online and stuff like that, trying to find some clear cuts to potentially get into. And I did find, I did finally get into one here to, toward the end of the day, uh, which is actually where I saw the best deer sign for the, for the, for the day. Cause my first kind of mission was there was this, these two kind of swamps that were on either side of like this very kind of, um, not super obvious saddle, I guess is maybe one way to, one way to put it. Like when you look really close, you can tell there's like a little bit of a depression and it's clear that deer are going to probably get funneled in this particular area between these two, between these two kind of swampy areas that's on this mountaintop. And, uh, so my plan was to go head there first thing this morning, check that out. And then I had, you know, one other place marked that I, that I got, that I had an opportunity to go check out. And then I had one other place that I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to get into, um, there's not really any access roads into that one that's, that's nearby. Um, and so I think it's like a five mile ish hike just to get to the spot that I want to check based on, based on access. I mean, if, if I had, 
private access, you know, I could, I could backdoor it, you know, pretty easy and it wouldn't be that bad. You know, part of the challenge is I have to kind of ask myself if I don't have private access and the sign actually, actually ends up being good over there, am I actually going to hike in five miles, you know, in a morning and, and go hunt it? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I haven't found a way to really get in, um, you know, into that particular piece. So I went to head over to the, to the first area to, to check out that kind of pinch between those two swamps. And uh, it was going to be a nasty, gnarly climb to get up to the top because there wasn't really, there was no access road or anything like that to kind of use to get to it. So it was basically just, you know, one way it was going up. And uh, I started heading down that way and just so happened where I parked the trailer the night before was, you know, maybe 300 yards from, you know, headed down the road toward where I needed to be to kind of walk in um, in the morning. And uh, when I got down like maybe 300 yards, like they, there is the snow is all pushed up there. Like, so a big snow barricade and it hadn't been touched and it's just, uh, nothing but a sheet of ice down through there. And which kind of led me to believe like when I got up this morning too, and I kind of looked around like on one side of the mountain was just completely snow covered still. Um, and not, uh, not with just like a skiff, the snow either. It was, it was still pretty deep. Um, but the, on the other side of the mountain, like I'm in, I'm kind of parked in a Valley and on the other side, it's, it's pretty clear. And so what that basically told me was anything that's not south facing on this particular trip is probably not scoutable right now. Um, I did kind of head over to where I was, uh, you know, planning to kind of walk to and just kind of made a detour and found an access trail that I could kind of use like an old logging road. And I used that and got back in. uh, I don't even know how far it was, maybe five, six miles or something like that as I kind of scouted my way around. Um, And there was just still a pile of snow. It was pretty, uh, pretty tough sledding. So after the pup and I kind of got through that, I realized I was like, all right, I'm just not making a whole lot of progress. I found nothing for deer sign. Really. I found like one small rub, um, and realized I just wasn't covering as much ground as quickly as I would like to. And, and I, and I can't see the floor. So if there are scrapes anywhere, I certainly can't see them. So kind of came back to camp real quick, looked at the map and figured out what the next move was, went over to this other area that I kind of I kind of stumbled onto while I was scouting and I could kind of see across the, the valley onto this next kind of mountain. And it looked like the snow was melted off of it. And as I was looking on the map, I realized there was a kind of like a, a pull off area that I could get to, to kind of walk into the, to hike into the area that I wanted to scout. And so I ended up doing that. And that was actually where I found the best, the best deer sign. Uh, I found some decent rubs. Um, it's still, again, like everything around here is just swampy. It's just, it's the weirdest thing. Um, and so I'm not finding a lot of scrapes, which is kind of a bummer because not that they're not there. I just don't know if they're there or not. Cause there's still so much water laying on the ground. Um, but I did find a couple decent rubs and just a ton of scat. Um, so I know that deer are there. I know that deer are using those areas. You know, I'm kind of, uh, had Johnny, uh, um, had had Johnny Stewart kind of ringing in my ears as I was scouting. Cause you, know, you guys know that he's been on the show before and, you know, he's a, he's a guy that it's, if there's no browse, like he's not even messing with it. Right. In, in, in the big woods. Um, and so I was kind of thinking of that and cause some of the places I was at this morning, just when you would look at it, there really wasn't a reason for a deer to be in some of those areas and there, and there wasn't any sign, there was nothing, you know, in, in those areas, I was trying to get to some areas where I thought that there would be, um, was just kind of getting stymied by, by the amount of snow. And so when I got into this area, it wasn't a surprise, right? It was an old clear cut. I want to say an old clear cut. It was like one of the newer ones. Actually, a really fresh clear cut, kind of like surrounding a swamp with like a, a little bit older clear cut kind of surrounding it. 
And so I kind of hiked all through that and just found all kinds of deer signs, just not a, you know, a handful of rubs, you know, I'd say probably one really good one. Um, but just deer scat and just deer are living there. And there's just a ton of browse in that area. So that's a spot where when things dry out a little bit, I would probably come back and take another look to see if I could find some scrapes somewhere. Um, get up onto the elevation a little bit more and see, and see what's doing up there. Um, cause I, I basically made a quick loop through kind of, uh, crisscrossed it a couple times and found a little bit of sign and then had to kind of beat it back to camp, um, for, for the end of the night, um, uh, before, before the sun went down. So that was kind of the game plan for today. And that's, that's what, uh, and that's what, you know, kind of went down tomorrow morning. You were, the pup and I are going to scout probably for a couple hours in the morning before we have to head out of here. So we'll get up, try to get up early and, uh, and pull out, pull, pull out a camp probably around noon to head back, to head back home. So, there's one particular area that I want to try to get to um, tomorrow, and that's kind of the the plan. I'm I'm, I'm going to try to find another way to get to the spot I wanted to go to first thing this morning. I'm going to try to kind of go in a roundabout way and come in maybe on the other side. Maybe there's a way that I can get in that way. Um, if not, then we'll just kind of make a plan on the fly and uh, and see what happens. But the it's uh you know man this this big woods chunk it's 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 big it's interesting. Um, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to coming back. I'm already kind of thinking about maybe coming back and turkey hunting it. Um, it's just kind of nice to be able to go out and see different places. Um, and that's, it's exactly what I built the trailer for is to do stuff like this. And if nothing else, just kind of hanging out with the pup, you know, I'm, I'm sipping a little bit of bourbon right now, recording this up front of the podcast, you know, listening to the hiss of the, uh, of the, of the heater and the camper and, uh, I don't know there'd be too many places I'd rather be. So so with that, we're going to get jumped into today's podcast, talking Adirondack Mountain Bucks with Todd Mead. As always, thank you all for listening. So I want to, there's, I was re, as I was reading through the book, man, you made a, a good, there was one kind of, you made a lot of good points, but there was one in particular that I kind of, I kind of stuck out to me. And it might be because partially I've lived it, especially in, in the big woods. And it kind of goes back to something we talked about or touched on just a little bit ago, which was, you know, more related to, you know, the deer density being low and not spending time on in areas that aren't that aren't popping. And, you know, you you basically kind of talked a little bit about, you know, how many sits it takes to find us to tell whether or not a spot is going to be good, especially when you have such low deer density, you know, that <laughs> you know, you don't know how long you might have to sit there. So can you talk to me a little bit about like how much time will you give a spot before you're like, yeah, it's just not happening here. Even, you might have some sign there, but you're just like, yeah, this, this isn't going to happen. It all depends on where I am and what's going on. Like I can't stress how important it is to have a good hunting partner. Mm-hmm. If you have a good hunting partner and you don't care who kills a deer it's a lot easier to kill big deer because one guy out of the two years, one guy is going to find an area that's, you know, a lot more active than another area. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go there. So if I, if I'm sitting someplace for two days, maybe, and then my buddy Brian or my father is sitting someplace else and it's happening where they are, well, I'm going where they are. Mm-hmm. Or if it's happening, I am, they're coming where I am. And we'll find a way to get them in there where we can all be in that area. Uh, so it's like, I won't give it very long until I say, okay, it's time to go. But at the same time, if I'm hunting big woods, I'm and I, you know, the deer density is low. I might sit there all year because I know that deer is coming there. Mm-hmm. It's just a 
of when is he going to be there when I'm going to be there. Yeah. Firm believer in the, in the bigger woods, like where I live, like deer will loop and in their loop, they might go through that area maybe twice a week, uh, once a week, you know, once every couple of weeks. And, uh, so I, I figure if I sit there long enough, I'll intercept that deer if it's the one I want, <laughs> but at the same time, like a lot of people don't realize some places are good morning and evening. Some places are way better in the morning, way better in the evening. And some places are dead, you know, completely dead one of the other times. So mm -hmm. determining which area is the best at a certain time is pretty important. Yeah. How do you, how do you, um, is there, is there something like outside of having trail camera, you know, information or outside of actually having a visual personally, like an, an encounter, is there anything that you use? And this, this, and this might be just more of your spidey senses. Is there anything that kind of clues you into whether or not a spot might be better morning or better, better evening? Do you have any kind of criteria that you use for that? I don't really have criteria. I mean, there, there are, you know, little things. Mm -hmm. Um, like one thing I would tell you is if you find, if you find rubs and they're, you know, they're up near the top of a hill, they're going into thick stuff. Mm -hmm. The deer is most likely going up there to bed. So, I mean, probably late morning, he's going to be in there. Mm -hmm back in there to lay down um so that might be a good area to look at you know if there's a bunch of rubs going up the hill into that the thick crap um yeah. no but generally it's funny because my friend brian and i just talked about this recently he's like well how do you know where the deer is going to come from because i can almost always tell you which direction the deer is going to come from even though i've never sat there right and i don't i don't really know what it is it's just like a sixth sense that i have um and I don't know if it's because I've hunted so long or, or I can imagine it in my head. I'm like, you know, I'd have to be in the spot to, to show you, but I'm like, the deer is going to come here from, from there because this, but I can't sit here and tell you why I would think that without being in the actual spot. Right. You have to be able to show it to you. Yeah, no, that it totally makes sense. I, I I'm, I'm more of like a, probably more of a gut person <laughs> and I'm not, yeah. it, it also depends on where I'm at. Right. Like, so like you were saying the big woods, I'm going to definitely give it a soak. Um, just cause of what you said, like they have much longer lines of movement in those un, unbroken low structure kind of un areas. And so, you know, I always, you know, friends of mine that asked me, you know, about hunting these certain areas, I'm, I'm like, there's really two approaches that can, can work. Like either got to be, have a lot of patience and be able to sit, or you got to be willing just to put the boot leather to work and, and go get after it and find where they're at. You know, I was like, those are really the only two approaches. Like if you, if you kind of st split the difference, at least in my experience has been whenever I split the difference in the big woods, it's like, I've had, that's when I've had my most frustrating hunts. Um, it's more of committing to a strategy and then ride, riding it out to a degree. This is when I've, when I've done a little bit better, but whenever I'm traveling out of state, you know, I'm in areas that have more structure, whether it's Missouri, Ohio, Iowa, whatever the case is, you know, I'm way less patient. And so I might get in a tree in the morning and if I'm hunting like a scrape area or whatever, if I don't see a buck come through to hit that scrape by like 10 30, 11 o'clock, like I'm, I'm down and moving and it might even be earlier. Cause I'm assuming they're going to come by and check after the does get back to bed. And so if they don't, if I don't see him by then, then I'm considering it a bust and I'm moving on to the next spot and just burning up the boot I can, leather. I can probably make you sit still. What's that? I said, I can probably make you sit still. I would, if you have a trick to help me sit still, man, like I, lay it on me. I'm all ears. Yeah. 
Okay, now, you know how I told you we have like 65 trail cameras uh, in the Adirondacks, throughout the Adirondacks? Yep. Well, this year I had, I think we had 25 or 27 trail cameras when, when I went out of state. And they were set up in all these different areas. And some of the best activity is between 11 and 1 o'clock with big bucks. Yeah. So, I mean... You might not see anything there the entire time, yeah. but like it's trying to kill a big deer. Like most people are out of the woods then, mm-hmm. like in my experience where I've gone. And I almost, you know, deer don't think like humans, but I mean, they might feel the little, little bit of less pressure then. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, now I can wander around. So, uh, I think that maybe they, they move a little more. They sense it probably, mm-hmm. especially in heavily pressured areas. Yeah. Yeah. That, that midday movement, it's, uh, I, I know I've definitely burned myself on that a few times. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's hard to sit in a spot, but if I have a feeling like, like what we were just talking about, if there's a yeah. lot of sign, like how many sits do you give it there? Yeah. Well, enough sign. I'm going to sit there all day because I'm hunting with my father and my buddy and both of them like to wander around more than I do. I'd, I'd rather sit all day. Mm-hmm. I know if they're wandering around, they'll find another good spot and I don't have to worry about finding a good spot. I'll figure out if this one is good all day. Right. Right. So, or vice versa. I might be the guy wandering around that day and they might be sitting all day. Right. Yeah. I think the one, the other thing that I do too, um, was if I do see movement, so for a particular area, right. So I was hunting a particular area in it was in Iowa and I wasn't seeing any movement anywhere until I was having all my encounters at around three o'clock. And so I yeah. knew, I knew then at that point that, you know, and, and this was after a couple of days of this happening to me where it's like, okay, I'm seeing nothing, nothing, nothing. Then I'm having an encounter at three. Then I moved to another spot, nothing, 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 have an encounter around two thirty, three o'clock. So then I kind of knew I was like, all right, in this particular area, for whatever reason, these deer are moving and or hitting scrapes sometime after two, two thirty. So as long as I'm finding the spot I need to be in by that time, I should be okay. And that's, and that's kind of what happened. And that's how I kind of, kind of played that out. And that's the one time it didn't burn me. Um, it's probably burned me in other, in other States. So for sure, another sits, cause I haven't had that same kind of encounter data to kind of base it off of. It's been more of just gut feeling. So, and I'm sure that it was, it was wrong, but I want to, you mentioned scrape or you mentioned rubs just a couple minutes ago when you were talking about, you know, being able to tell, um, you know, maybe what direction the deer's deer's headed, you know, or, or what time that, that spot might be good morning and evening based on, you know, maybe you see a rub that's headed into like a bedding area on top of a ridge or whatever the case is, you know, talk to me a little bit about how you're reading rubs and specifically how you're using signpost rubs to kind of orient yourself, because that was one of the really interesting things that I picked up while I was reading the book, because I've, I've found in a couple of different areas that I've hunted some, you know, some decent signpost rubs, but for the life of me, I could not kind of correlate or tie back anything to those signpost rubs. And then I, when I was reading through your book, what you kind of mentioned made a lot of sense. And I started thinking about it differently and the, this particular parcel started making a lot more sense to me. So <laughs> talk to me a little bit about how the significance of the signpost rub and how you kind of use that as a, as a compass to a degree. 
first you're going to have to refresh me because I don't remember writing anything about <laughs> up in there. Now, you were kind of, t- you talked about, you know, when you're looking, like you'll find these rubs and they, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes and they, and they mean different things. And the one thing you kind of mentioned was that, you know, when you find a, a signpost rub, the one thing that kind of dawned on you was that it almost acts as, as a spoke or as a hub for spokes to come off of like it's a bicycle tire. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, I don't need any more. I just okay. couldn't remember what I wrote about in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So here's an example. Okay. Like I started hunting a new area and my cousin Kyle had told me to hunt in there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, of all my cousins, he's the closest one because we both hunt and he's probably a much better hunter than me, but he's not as good of a shooter as me. So, uh, he, he, he just takes his gun for a walk and shoots it in the woods. So, but anyhow, he brought me into this area and he told me, he says, this, this area is really good. And I I looked around in it and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to come back here. So the more I looked around, we're getting ready to leave. And I told him, I said, Kyle, I'm not going to hunt in here. I just, it's not for me. Uh, I don't see enough sign in here to warrant coming back. And then I looked like out across this swamp. And in the swamp, I, there was sun shining on this tree. And it was like an aha moment. The, there was a signpost out there, and it was rubbed probably about to my chest. And it was, you know, it had been for years. It was hollowed out and stuff. Yep. So I'm like, holy cow, let's go take a look at that. So I went and looked at it. I mean, this tree was giant. I mean, it was it was as big as my waist. <laughs> for the country I live in, that's that's pretty damn big. Yeah. Um, and then... Then I looked at it and I'm like, holy cow. So I said to him, I said, I'm coming back in here hunting. So my whole philosophy changed on it in a matter of five minutes in <laughs> that one rub. Because, I mean, granted, little little deer are going to hit that tree too. But, I mean, for the way that the tree was shredded year after year, I knew big bucks lived in there, even right. though I hadn't found them yet. So what I did is I put a trail camera on it. And uh, I left the trail camera on it for two years, I think. And I got one picture of a big buck and it wasn't even on the signpost tree. It was just walking by it. And then I had a bunch of pictures of does. So, and then I sat there a few times. I didn't see anything. I'm like, man, what the hell's going on? I know there's deer in here. So then the more I wandered around in there, I started finding more deer sign. So then over time, I realized I was just in the wrong spot. It was a place where big bucks went and rubbed trees, but not very often. Mm-hmm. And they hit it, you know, early in the season. And uh, it was before the deer were really doing, you know, doing what they do during the prime time of the hunting season. Right. And I moved a couple hundred yards in every direction. And since the year I found that signpost, I killed deer all around it but I still don't see any deer around it. Hmm. So it's more like uh, if you find a signpost, you know, a lot of deer probably use it and you know that there's, you know that that area holds big deer because most likely big deer are the ones that, that are thrashing the tree. Right. So when you find the signpost, you have to look all around it. Like it's all encompassing. Mm-hmm. It would be, I don't know what to explain it as. It would be similar to, Okay, like you're going to go downtown to get something to eat in the hub is like there might be a food court someplace, but then, you know, oh, there's better areas that aren't quite as busy, a little bit better food, you know, on the outskirts of the city or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. When you find the main area, which is the signpost or whatever, you know you're in the game, but now you just have to figure out where to sit in the stands. Right. It it becomes micro adjustments at that at that yeah. point. Like yeah. you you've you've gotten into the right town. Now you just need to get to the right street and in the right house. You know. At, at That's that point. It. And then just keep, you know just keep on looking because you know, without a big deer population, it might take you a while to figure it out. Like this place frustrated me to no end. I couldn't figure it out. And then instantly one day I found something. It was a, it was a giant, uh, you know, community scrape and it wasn't 200 yards from that signpost. And then after I found the signpost, like I, you know, I killed a lot of, a lot of big deer off that other scrape. Right. Yeah. Because scrapes are coming up next because that's one of the things I want to talk about. But before we move to that, you know, was this signpost, was it related to betting at all? Like, was there was there betting that was nearby there? And and just in general, I wanted to ask, too, maybe most specifically to the Adirondacks is, you know, where are you? Where are you finding, I guess, the most the most betting or how are you locating? Like, I guess maybe. Let me back up and rephrase this earlier in the year before, you know, maybe capitalizing on movement, you know, in say like early October, for example, you know, where are you kind of noticing that those mature bucks are betting in, in, in the big woods? Is there a particular area that you've kind of keyed in on or is it? Yeah. Big woods are totally different when it comes to betting. Like you can pretty much toss betting out the window. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) midwestern thing yeah uh i'm a firm believer i might have people argue with me but in my experiences like i've followed a lot of deer tracks i've hunted all over i've covered a lot of ground there are very few pieces of woods where deer bed consistently in the same place Mm -hmm. they exist but in my experiences deer i followed and stuff like that they walk and they they eat a little bit and they lay down when they're tired yep they don't that bedding quote unquote cover mm-hmm. quite as necessary is what it is in areas that are a lot more condensed mm-hmm. where the thing is essential to their survival. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I mean, I've seen a lot of places where deer will bed, you know, like where they can overlook, you know, big areas. But then I've also seen where deer bed, like right underneath a blowdown where you can't see 10 feet in any direction. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing earlier in the year, which I know for for a fact, because I I use this strategy a lot. If you find a lot of rubs, like what I call clusters of rubs, early in the year, right around an area that's being fed a lot, you can almost guarantee that that buck is living right there. He's sleeping, he's eating, he's doing everything right there. But as soon as you get into like that last week of October, you can toss that out of the window because he's probably not going to stay there anymore. Right. So, like, if I find big rubs or, like, clusters of any kinds of rubs and there's, like, a beech tree that is dropping or, or say, an oak tree, which is a little bit, you know, you find more oak trees on the southern end of the Adirondacks. Uh, if you find any of those rubs and, and you have an active tree like that, you're probably going to see that deer if you just stick it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because, I mean, I've seen similar in, in, in the big woods. The only place... The only, I, I think the only, what I'll call predetermined or heavily used bedding, maybe a better way to put it, um, where it's like, I could tell that it was a, a buck bed where it was a solo bed. It was worn to the dirt, you know, and I've only found a handful of those in, in the big woods. I always related those more so to, bu- to, to rut beds 
because where they were located were usually nearby scrapes or, you know, in, in the particular area that piece of big woods I hunt, it's the, the country's pretty steep. So it's more spinebacks on the top and the does will run that the bucks don't run that so much, but a lot of the, a lot of the, the rut bedding was kind of like just down off the edge of those spinebacks where they could scent check whatever does were running back and forth on the, on the top without having to get up into the fray. Or they were just bedding right off the edge of that in, in like a clear, the edge of a clear cut. And those are really the only defined beds I saw. But if we, and we have a ton of cameras out there. And so outside of like the, the pre-rut and rut, like we would never see bucks in those areas ever, you know? And so the, to me that said that like those beds are being used predominantly probably for as rut beds. Do you see anything like that? I've seen in the, like in the snow, I've seen where deer, like a buck will chase a doe all over the place. Mm-hmm. He'll just lay down there. Um, but don't, <laughs> know if you'll ever see that in the midwest i don't know i have enough experience in the snow mm-hmm. but like up where i am i mean you can be three miles back in the wilderness and those deer may have never seen a person before <laughs> so they act probably a little bit differently right. um I mean, they're gonna bed in the wide open where you can walk up on them and shoot them because of course that's not gonna happen right don't think that they have the I got to go find deep, heavy cover to bed in and, and, you know, and I'll spend my time here to get away from people. Right. Hired right now. I'm going to lay down right here. Right. Yeah. And then as far as the other beds go, uh, I'll be able to answer that for you next year because, uh, my friend Adam and I were talking about it and like, we've both seen beds like that, that, you know, that the, it it appears that the same buck comes back to it. And like, we might've kicked a buck out of the bed. Mm Mm-hmm. Next year, my friend Adam is going to put a camera on one of those beds, and we've never had a camera on a bed before. So we're going to find out how much it gets used mm-hmm. and how much it gets used. Nice. Yeah, that'll be that'll be some cool footage and just some cool data in general to see what's what's using that and how and how often. You know, we will find out the same deer. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. What do What do you think? Like, I, I, do you think it would be the same deer? Do you think it's going to be a different deer? What's your hypothesis? <laughs> see, we. I don't know. Like, I think that Adam thinks it might be different deer. I, I kind of think it's going to be the same deer. I think that he's probably done it for years. Uh-huh. So I don't, I don't know. Like, to be honest, I don't know. I don't have a guess. Maybe, maybe somebody else could fill me in and tell me what they found. Right. Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm just asking for just the, the, the purpose of just, you know, uh, conversation here. Cause I really don't have a good beat on it, on it either. I would guess if I were to just guess, I would say that it's going to be a specific deer that's going to inhabit it most often and that you're going to have a passerby occasionally. Actually, I've got a good story as far as that goes. Okay. A few years ago, I wounded a really, I mean, really big buck, like a smasher. And I, I had hit it pretty hard. And my friend Brian and I were tracking it. And then I saw it, it got up and it took off running. I'm like, son of a gun. I, you know, we let it, we let it sit all day. I hit it first thing in the morning. And then this was, I don't know, a few hours before dark and, uh, it got up and it took off and I'm like, well, let's just go look at the bed. Cause when it got up and took off, I mean, it looked relatively healthy mm-hmm. friend, Brian and I walked up and we looked at the bed and sure enough, there was, you know, blood all over in the bed. And, uh, we're like, I said to Brian, I said, follow the, the tracks up the hill and then I'll go down the bottom. I'll see if he cut back down here. So he followed the tracks up the hill and, uh, you know, there was no blood in any of the tracks. He followed him as long as he could because it was, uh, you know, leaves and stuff. And you could see in the bed where he, where the blood had clotted. So, uh, 
I figured I lost the deer and then we're like, yeah, okay, we better, you know, we better get out of here. And uh, we're walking back and we're going to go back to, to where my tree stand was, which is, I don't know, at that point, maybe half a mile or something. And uh, as we're walking, I glanced to my right and we're probably, I'm going to say 200 yards from that bed going the opposite direction of the way the deer ran. Mm-hmm. And I to my right and the deer that was in the bed that I had wounded was laying dead right there. <laughs> so we didn't, when the deer got up and jumped out of the bed and ran the other direction, it was another deer that came down and bedded in the same bed that my deer had bedded in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the excitement, we never looked the opposite direction to see that, that a buck had gotten out of the bed because a buck, a buck got out of the bed. And it took off running. So why would I ever expect that, that the buck that I wounded wasn't him and it was a different one that walked the other direction? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pure luck that we found the deer. Right. And, you know, it was just, it was the deer. One of the chapters in the book there, it was the, it's the deer that's on the cover of the chapter. Mm-hmm. A really wide deer and oh. I'm, I'm behind it has a couple broken tines yeah nice yeah that's he had a decoy man he was trying to throw you off the trail (laughs) so that tells you right there that i mean bucks obviously use the same bed and that was in the same day yeah yeah that's crazy man Um, the one that i jumped that's why i thought it was the one that i had killed yeah it it, look i'll do a little bit of bed hunting around here in, in, in in early season um truth be told it's like i'm not a i'm not a great bed hunter um, that's just not, you know, I, I struggle to find like primary beds. And, and when I say that I'll try to hunt bedding areas more so than I'll be hunting, hunting beds per se. And, um, and that usually just comes from running, you know, trail cameras and understanding where they want to spend time. Like this year, I thought I had a, I thought I had a dynamite spot for early season. I mean, I had this one place, I actually found a good bed and it was actually what you were talking about. I had a cluster of small trees that it had tore up right from the previous year. And I found it scouting. It was on the edge kind of edges of this of this uh clear cut and i was like man i'm gonna put a camera in here i was like this has to be a decent spot and there was a a white oak that was maybe 50 yards from where that bed was at that was there were still some acorns on the ground i mean they were rotted of course because it was all wet but like if it was a good a good year this year it's like there should be acorns there again right and i was like man this is a dynamite spot and uh i was monitoring it had some trail cameras running um I did like a pool, like at one point during the summer, just to kind of check. Cause it was a brand new spot to me. I'd never hunted it before and found it just while I was scouting. And, uh, man, there were bucks every day on that camera, like all summer into early fall and all between seven thirty AM and like ten thirty AM, like daylight. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would get does on there, but the does were always at night. And, yeah. and this is the weirdest thing for Pennsylvania because, you know, I don't, I don't live in an area that has a lot of low deer density, but it's heavily pressured public land. And so, you know, you're not going to necessarily see a ton of bucks. You'll see a ton of does and the, the doe numbers are obviously higher around here as well. 
But for every doe that I had on camera, I probably had four pictures of, of a buck. And it was just, I'd never seen that before in, in PA, like that much, that many bucks. And they was just like this little highway crossing and they were just going back and forth. And then as soon as, I don't know, like second week of October hit or, you know, end of the first week of October, it was like someone shut the faucet off. Like <laughs> no bucks at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> like not only did I not see any when I was in there, whenever I would check the camera, whenever I'd be in there, cause it, it was on my way kind of into the, where I was set, where I set up in there zero bucks on camera. I think I got one really good shooter, but it was at night and I could just barely kind of see him. And, you know, and he was the only one that passed through, but during <laughs> like leading up to like the second week of October, man, I had bucks in there. I had two really nice ones in there that I would have been happy to shoot either one of them. And just, it was like someone just turned the faucet off. No rhyme or reason. <laughs> I haven't figured out why, you know what I mean? It's like, there was, there wasn't people in there. There was no pressure, you know? So it wasn't anything like that. It was just, they don't live there that time. You're kind of what you were talking about before where you go to places and it's like, you see deer signs, like, well, they might not live there when it's time to hunt there. Yeah, exactly. You know, so you to determine that. Yeah. So I'm going to give it another sachet this year and see, see what's shaking, see if maybe it was just like an, an off year or maybe, you know, the bucks that were kind of using that area don't weren't using that as like their core range, or maybe there'll be one that's, you know, moves in to make that his fall core range or something like that this year. Cause it's, it's a dynamite little spot, you know, um, well, well on, on that topic, I mean, I've, I've also noticed this in the Southern Adirondacks where we actually have oak trees. Mm -hmm. Um, they might've fed under that tree at that time period. And then they might've found a tree that they like better. Like I I've noticed over the years and I don't know, 30 some years of hunting, um, they go to certain trees at certain areas and they'll just stay under that tree for a certain time unless something happens. Right. Um, I mean, you could have another tree that might be within a couple hundred yards of there that maybe that's where they move to. And then there's no reason to, for them to go back by that tree, even if the feed is still there. Right. Right. And there's not really any, now that makes sense. And the funny thing is there's not really any primary food around there either. So I know they're not, you know, in ag fields around there. Cause there's just not anything, yeah. not anything close. It's not farm country. That's that, that I'm in, you know, in that particular area, but I want to kick over to primary scrapes real quick, man. Uh, do you have some time left still? I don't want to eat up all your time this evening. I got all night. Oh, <laughs> awesome, man. Um, primary scrapes. Like this is one of the things that I absolutely is probably like one of my favorite things to, to find and to, and to hunt, uh, in, in, in relation to, um, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, what makes a primary scrape in your mind, right? Cause much like rubs, right. They come in all shapes and sizes and they have different significance based on where they're at, where you found them, how many there are in that area. So talk to me a little bit about primary scrapes, how you use them and what you kind of really determine to be like, this is a scrape that I'm going to spend time hunting. I'll like, I'll walk all through the woods. If I find a scrape that has a, like a, hammered licking branch and like for anybody who doesn't know what a licking branch is i assume most people do you know the branch that's broken off above the scrape um if it's a big branch and it's really thrashed then i'm i'm probably going to sit there as long as the scrape is big and active um but the things the scrapes that are the most productive in my experience are the ones where a lot of things come together like you might have you know, you might have two, three different runways that all come together and they meet in the same place. And then you might even have 
a gold mine would be if you had like three or four of those scrapes in a you know in a circle in that general area which doesn't happen too often that's like a i won't call it a once in a lifetime find like on public land but it's those areas are really hard to find um and if you can find a place that has multiple you know licking branch scrapes within sight of each other it's going to be dynamite um so that's what i look primarily for when i when i go searching um and then anything that any runways that are really pounded and there's a you know a big community scrape on it like i'll definitely i'll give that a sit also right yeah it's uh those i've been fortunate to find so when I was in Iowa, whatever it was, two years ago, I found a primary scrape area that had probably three. Well, there was probably a total of six scrapes within a 10 yard area. And of those six, three had licking branches. And yeah. I saw I, I ended up missing probably like a mid 140s eight point, um, which bump, really bummed me out. But dynamite, dynamite spots. So that was like the one primary scrape spot I found this year that the, the one buck I was telling you about that kept kind of cat and we were playing cat and mouse and I kept kind of, you know, missing him, you know, by a day that was a primary scrape where I found like this off season had probably four or five scrapes all around like this big kind of bush with like three different licking branches, like within that bush. And I hung a camera on it early in the year, like probably like may and deer actually are hitting it during, during the summer. So it's like the communication hub of that piece. Yeah. That's another thing. Like people don't realize, uh, I, I put a camera in a place, um, last year Mm. and I knew a good place, but I just wanted to see, you know, how much activity it was getting. So I went in there and, uh, I hung the camera. I think it was in August. So then the opening weekend of our muzzleloader season, I think it was, I decided I would go check it out because the scrape was hammered last year. So I went to check it out and I got to it. I'm like, ah, oh, son of a gun. And, uh, cause I looked at the scrape, there was absolutely no activity. I'm like, oh, this sucks. So, uh, I pulled the card and I said, well, I'll flick through it while I'm here. And, uh, I started looking at it and I was like, oh my God. I had, I think eight different shooters on the, on the card and I had all sorts of different bucks on it, but yet the scrape had never been opened. I couldn't even tell that it had been there. (laughs) And uh, so I left the camera there the rest of the season and, you know, there was some more activity, but for the most part, the scrape never got opened. So just because the scrape's not opened doesn't mean it's not getting used. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good point you know, that's, uh, um, they're not always, they're not always necessarily pawing the ground, right? Like that's a yeah. specific kind of, uh, uh, behavior, I guess you, you would say, and not every well, yeah, deer to, to piss on their hocks. But yeah, I mean, there were a few other primary scrapes in that area, um, which turned out to be a little bit better as far as like activity to kill a deer on, mm-hmm. uh, in those scrapes, they were digging out and, and pissing on their hocks. But the scrape down the bottom, every single deer went there. Right, right. That's interesting. Kind of, kind of different. The one thing that I I really like about scrapes too, and, well, I like a lot of things about them. But one of the things that I really appreciate about them is that you know hunting over them or hunting near them is that 
you know, this is, again, I'm going to pull a quote from your, from your book, man, because you just said a lot of stuff that really resonated with me as I was reading through it, you know, is that I've found that I've learned more by hunting over scrapes than I would have maybe hunting other places potentially, because even if I'm seeing deer hit, hit these scrapes that I'm not necessarily, you know, intending to kill because maybe it's not the deer that I'm chasing or whatever the case is, like I'm, I'm watching deer for longer periods of time. And that's one yes. thing that I've come to appreciate more so is just the encounters, not the, yes, the excitement of seeing a deer or a buck or whatever it is. Like, yes, I love that part of it, but it, it actually helps me calm down too, is that I actually watch the deer more intently now, even if I'm not going to shoot it and just kind of study what it's doing and how it's reacting and like what noises is it reacting to and how is it reacting to the, to the scrape and how much time is it spending sniffing and is it circling downwind or anything like just watching their getting to spend more time with deer around me and, and recognizing that that's a learning opportunity for me and not just a, an encounter that's fleeting, but there's something there to be gained is one of the things that I most appreciate about hunting over scrapes. And that's one of the things you talked about was just learn about deer more quickly. You learn about them more quickly when you're surrounded, surrounded by them. So can you talk to me a little bit about that idea? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny because being brought up in the Adirondacks, I was never around a lot of deer. Um, but one thing I was able to do is since there aren't very many deer, I was able to find deer. Mm -hmm. So then as I went to the Midwest, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see more deer, of course. Mm -hmm. So that out there. And then I, the more that I started watching deer, the more that I learned about them. And uh, it just, it allowed me to understand things that I had never understood before. Like if you, I think a lot of people just regurgitate information and uh, they heard it. So that's the, you know, that's the rule or whatever. Right. I've seen a lot of deer that, that don't come into scrapes downwind. Mm -hmm. I mean, into scrapes, whatever direction they come into them from. And, uh, you know, they might cross cut the wind or stuff like that. But I mean, just like little things like that, too many people are all hung up on, oh, you have to be in this spot or you have to be in that spot. Well, when I'm in the woods, I've learned you can be almost anywhere because when you're in big woods, deer tend to wander all over the place and they come from different places. There might be a primary place they come from, but they will come from all directions. And uh, I think knowing that is important. And I learned that by watching deer. I mean, because you could, you could sit someplace one morning and have deer come from four different directions. And then you might have the big buck that came from the direction you anticipated he came from. And, you know, if you paid attention to say the wind in the morning or whatever, you, you locked out, but then you might have some other big deer come from the direction that the wind, you know, that you set up. So the wind was in your favor and it ended up not being in your favor. Mm -hmm. So as far as learning about deer, I learned, uh, goes back to that whole thing. Like, don't, don't overanalyze everything. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, take it for what it is and, and see what happens. And another thing like it, which became really obvious to me, you have a lot of time usually to shoot a deer. Yeah. Take your time. Like most people will pull their bow back and they'll, they'll get on it and let it rip. I mean, just take your time. And, uh, I would rather not get a shot than to rush a shot off and then make a, you know, make a bad shot. Right. 
Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the one thing I've appreciated about just, just watching deer in general is that I've picked up on is trying to better understand, you know, we always think deer are completely on edge, you know, and, and ready to jump at the first, you know, sound that they hear that they don't understand or whatever. And I think what I've kind of picked up by watching deer, you know, hitting these scrapes or whatever, that I've had a chance to really have a close encounter with them is trying to understand like when their body actually is tensing up, you know what I mean? Versus just being curious, you know what I mean? And being deer, because I mean, they're incredibly curious. I mean, I've had deer come in whenever I'm setting up because they hear me scraping the bark against a tree and they think there's a buck in there or a deer in there making noise in their territory and they just come in to check it out. Curious, you know? Yeah. And that's the one thing that I've started to try to be mindful of and read is, is when do they do certain things and what are their tells, right? Like when, when their tail does this, what tell is that? You know what I mean? When their ear does this, what tell is that? You know what I mean? So I understand whenever I'm having an encounter, you know, what is that deer's likelihood to be, you know, how on edge is it? You know, is it aggressive? Is it not aggressive? Is it looking for a fight? Is it not looking for a fight? Is it, is it submissive? Is it dominant? You know, so trying to pick these little things up to help me understand whenever I'm having the the encounters that I want to have, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've noticed a lot of, a lot of like deer that aren't the biggest antler deer uh, tend to be bullies. Yeah. If you, if you have a bully in an area and he doesn't have a big rack, the chances of you shooting a big, big rack deer in that area are a lot slimmer. So either shoot the bully or move to another area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was one little buck youngster, small rack buck that was hitting this, this one scrape. It was one that I got to watch this year for, I don't know. He probably hung out for 10 minutes, you know, pissing in the scrape, working every licking branch, every scrape that was there. Like, I mean, and I, I'd seen him in there on camera actually a couple of different times too. Like he was cock of the walk in there. Like he just, thought, <laughs> he thought he basically owned the place. You know, it's like he would show up and, you know, all, all stood up and proud every time he walked into it. Like he was just, he was the boss, you know, you know, I'm sure he knew, you know, but there were, you know, two other deer that were bigger in there that, you know, would, you know, typically probably dominate him just from the physical size. The other interesting thing was in that particular area, I ended up using a, uh, I had the tarsal glands from my, my buck in Iowa and I don't really use, I don't use like bottled scents or anything like that, but like I will cut, you know, the hawk off of a, the hawks off of a buck that I kill and freeze them and keep them. And then maybe use them like as a drag or hang them somewhere or whatever, whenever I'm hunting. And, uh, it was interesting cause I walked by like a camera that I had hung and, uh, had that, uh, uh, tarsal gland on a drag man. And that one buck hit it. And just his nose, as soon as he hit it, man, his nose was on the ground and he was, he wanted to know who it was. And then he went to the, he went to the scrape and the licking branch and just tore it up and like got all kinds of fired up. So that was good. So that, you know, was a tell for me of like, okay, this, this buck, he's willing to throw down. Like he's willing to be aggressive. Like he wants to protect his, protect his turf. So I don't really ever rattle in Pennsylvania, but that would have been one buck that I might've been able to get to play ball just by what I had seen. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of kind of getting aggressive there, man, you know, that was aggressive with calling, but you know, the one thing you kind of talk about too, that, that I, that I picked up on is, you know, being willing to take chances that maybe someone else isn't right. And, and that being part of the reason for, for finding success, right. Is kind of looking outside the norm and finding areas that you might be able to exploit that might seem, 
out of characteristic or, or overly aggressive. Can you talk to me about what some of those instances are and what you kind of mean about, you know, what you mean by, you know, taking chances, chances that others might not. Well, I've never been accused of being smart, so this could, (laughs) (laughs) this could be interesting. So uh, I don't know, like chances are different to everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and one person considers a chance, isn't a chance to somebody else. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't know, like going back to the wind thing, like I don't really care which way the wind blows when I'm going in someplace. Um, I'm not hunting food plots. I'm not hunting private land. Uh, you know, there might be 10 other people hunting the piece of property I'm hunting. So I, I really don't worry about the wind. So if I'm in an area and I know that a buck's been in there and the wind's wrong, like I'll still go there. I'll, t- I'll take the chance because if I blow the deer out of there, I mean, I can just go someplace else or I can come back, you know, a couple days later. Right. That's another thing. Like I hear it all the time. People are like, oh, you don't, you know, if you kick that deer out one time, then you're, you're done. Well, just think about this, for example, like when I was younger, my house got broken into and I felt violated. I didn't want to go back in the house. It was kind of uncomfortable for a little bit, but that's where I live. So I'm going to return my house and uh deer are the same way they they live there they're going to return to their house but you'll hear everybody say oh you're never going to get another opportunity that deer and and i just don't think that's true from my experiences (laughs) and uh you know so as far as taking a chance like i don't know if i would call that taking a chance i mean by going back to some place that you just blew a deer out of but i'll i'll go back (laughs) i mean because i know the deer is coming back it's just a matter of when is he going to come back? Right. You know, yeah. your point and then decide, okay, today's the day. Today's not the day. Um, you know, like little things like that. Um, yeah. As far as like other chances, like, I mean, if there are, if there are multiple people in an area, I tend to avoid it. But if it's an area that I'm really familiar with and I think that I can, I can make their presence advantageous to me, then I'll go in there. And, uh, what I mean by that is like, if you, if you have a spot where you think it's a little bit out of the way from everybody else that might be in there, even though you don't know where they are, then take your chance and go in there because they might kick you a deer. They might, you know, it might benefit you. They might move deer to you that might not have otherwise went by there. Right. And that's, that's another thing I look for too. When I'm in the woods, I always try to find escape routes, like where I think deer will travel if they get kicked. Because usually they'll go in the same type of direction once they get out of their initial, you know, burst Mm -hmm. and then find the cover that, you know, they've been protected by the most. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another, if you hunt with two people or like we do a lot of gun hunting in the Adirondacks, Mm -hmm. like a lot of times we'll just do a two man push. Like we know where the deer is going. I mean, even if it's just two men. Like if you go across the, the top of a knob or whatever, and there's only one place it can go off on the other side of it, the other guy just goes and, and waits on the other end while the one guy walks across the top of it. It might take it might take a half hour to do it, but if anything's on top of that, you know where the deer's going. Right. Yeah. Just uh, you know, really deer hunting is really just a game of chances. Yeah. That's a that's a good point. And that's <clears throat> to me, you know, it, it's uh in, two things that you said there that really kind of resonated with me was, you know, one was the idea of, you know, and I've talked about this with other, other guests and, you know, I know, 
you know, Zach from THP is a big kind of proponent of this as well as where it's <clears throat> people don't give deer enough credit for having more nerve than, than they actually do. Like you're not going to blow a deer out of the County. If you bump him once, even twice, it's like, you know, if over time he's continually bumped out of the same safe spot over and over and over again, well then yeah, he may end up moving, moving on. But general hunting pressure bumping him here and there where it's like he doesn't feel as though he was maybe targeted per se or he had a successful escape like you just kind of proved to him that where he was at the reason he was there worked for him you know he was able to avoid danger and that's why he likes that spot so totally agree with that and i kind of follow the same thing it's like i especially when i'm on out-of-state hunts i don't i don't really care so much about bumping deer i'm willing to bump deer to find them uh, and then once I find them, I try to figure out how can I strategically hunt them. But whenever I'm first figuring it out, it's like, I actually kind of want to move deer cause I want to see where they're at. And then the whole idea of like the escape routes and, and stuff like that, or, you know, the, the hunting pressure around you is really interesting. Like you're almost playing 3d chess at that point, right? Cause you're using what they're doing in relationship to what the deer are going to do and trying to set up for the optimum, optimum spot based on those things, which is, um, which is kind of a fun chess match to, to play. And then there was a big deer that you killed in your book doing exactly what you were saying, which was setting up on exit routes. It was during gun season. Do you recall that hunt? Yeah, that was a deer I killed in Ohio. Um, I had seen that same deer, uh, during archery season and I had never gun hunted in Ohio. And people told me, Oh, you don't want to be out here on public land with a gun. You'll, you know, you might not live. And they're telling me all this other stuff. So I, I had my, I talked to my father and, uh, it was actually the first year I had ever hunted out of state in in Ohio and uh, talked to my father about it. Like, well, you know, we got a tag. We might as well use, try to use it. And uh, so we'll go out there. And uh, so I figured there's no way it can be worse than Southern zone in New York on opening day when it used to open on a Monday because everybody and their brother hunted and you could use rifles where I hunted. You could only use shotgun in Ohio. So uh, we're like, well, I'll give it a try. So uh, I went down there, and I honestly couldn't believe it. Like anybody, anybody who thinks it's a war zone out there has never experienced opening day in Southern Zone in New York on a Monday. Right. <laughs> Since that time, it's changed to Saturday, which I don't believe is quite so bad. I just don't hunt Southern Zone anymore. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. In my experience there, I found this, you know, I found this pretty good bedding area. And of course, when there's a lot of gunfire, deer are going to go to where there's cover. And and this stuff was so thick that you could barely walk through it. But I had walked through it numerous times when I was trying to learn the whole area. And uh, that's what I always tell people. If you go to Ohio, if your skin isn't ripped apart by the end of the week, you didn't really hunt. Right. (laughs) I mean, there were so many rose briars that ripped me apart. Yeah. So anyhow, I decided to sit there on opening day of shotgun and I knew it would be a little out of the way because, uh, it was really steep downhill to get in there. And I knew from my experience hunting in archery season that probably nobody's going to go down there because people are lazy and they don't want to drag a deer out of there. Right. But I mean, for me, it really, I mean, I hunt in big mountains. It really wasn't a big deal to me. Right. Set up there and my father set up up the hill from me. So we kind of had the whole area covered and, uh, around 11 o'clock he, he came walking down to me. He was only a hundred, I think a hundred yards from me, 200 yards from me over a hill, but I couldn't see him. And he comes down and he says to me, uh, have you seen anything? 
And I, I can't remember. I think when I saw him, I had passed up like nine bucks or eight bucks or something at that point. And I had seen 45 deer, maybe. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact numbers. It's in the book there. And uh, and he's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. He's, I said, what do you see? And he's like, I can't remember. He either saw three does or nothing. Right. Tell you what, go sit right on that corner on the stream down there. Because where the stream corners and there's a gut that goes up through there, I said, there are a lot of deer going up through there and I can't really make them out. So I can't tell what they are. And, uh, but I, you know, you have to wear orange in Ohio and I could mm-hmm. see him. I could see my father sitting on that knob when he got over there. And I think he, I think he was sitting down by 11 o'clock, 10 after 11. Cause yeah, cause he got to me at 11 and it took maybe five, 10 minutes to walk there. So he's there. Let's call it 11, 10. So at noon, I see this spike horn. It's running right towards me and uh, it goes down past me. And then I look up and I can see, uh, I mean, that buck was a 12 pointer. The pictures don't do it justice. Justice it scored just under 140. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can see him standing there and I'm like, holy cow, he's coming right out of that thick stuff, which I figured the deer would come out of. And, uh, and then I let him have it. And then he ran up to me and my father, I can see him. He puts his hands up in the air and he's like, what are you doing? Like, it's, he's giving me that look like, what are you doing? Right. And uh, over, he's like, you shot that spike horn. And I'm like, uh, what, what spike horn? He says, the one that ran through there. I said, no, I didn't shoot the spike horn. I shot the 12 pointer. And he says, a 12 pointer. I said, yeah, I was right behind the spike horn. And he never, he never saw it. Dad never saw it. He probably could have shot it. <laughs> and uh, that ended up killing it. But both of those deer came right out of that thick cover. And Every single buck I saw came out of the thick cover. So like when they're, you know, when there's any kind of pressure, that's where they're going to go. So if you can find places on public land that you have to crawl on your hands and knees to get through, it's a great place for big bucks because they'll just go in there and lay down because they know no person in their right mind is going to go in there. And even if the person goes in there, the chances of getting them out of there are slim. I mean, because they can just run in circles in there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah, exactly. It, it, that's kind of the name of the game, you know, at least the one spot there were the couple spots, I guess that I've, that I've hunted in, in Ohio. It's, um, you know, I found <clears throat> plenty of clean hunting, shall we say, by just going to the, like the, the gnarliest spots that I can find, you know, a lot of times, especially like when I'm bow hunting, it's, I, I don't have a shot further than maybe 15 yards, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just willing to sit in the middle of the nasty stuff and know that like, like you were talking about before, it's, you know, finding the right spot to be, but if you're in the right spot, you know, I don't, you don't need to shoot further than 15 or 20 yards. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm a a competitive archer. Like I, you know, I've traveled all over the country shooting my bow and stuff like that. And, uh, I can make pretty good shots and I would still prefer to shoot 10, 15 yards. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. I was thinking, I was talking to someone the one time and I was like, I don't know that I've I can't think that at least in the past several years, it's everything's been within under 20 yards, you know, that's, and that's the other thing too. It's interesting. Cause that's was the other thing that kind of dawned on me when I was like, okay, things are starting to make more and more sense for me because my shots were getting closer and closer. <laughs> you know, it's like no longer was I having to take like a 35 yard shot. It's like, you know, I was, you know, my shots were all within, you know, 20 yards, 15 yards, whatever, whatever the case was, um, which meant I was playing my cards, right. You know, I was set up correctly, but, uh, yeah, that's 
thing too that you have to watch out for, which I know a lot of people aren't really aware of. Like depending on where you hunt, uh, deer have different personalities. Like some places they're on edge, some places they're not. Well, so like some places where you want to be set up at 10 yards where you know you can just drill them, it might not work in another place because those deer are too much on edge. So you're going to have to be 30 yards away. So mm-hmm. no, uh, you know, the characteristics of the deer in the area you're hunting yep. is probably a good idea. Yep. Like kind of pay attention to what the deer are doing that you see and, and base, base it off from that. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to that behavior, right? It's like spending time yeah. around deer to learn deer. You know, it's like you see a couple and you can kind of start to tell and feel because I know in Pennsylvania, man, they're jumpy, you know, it's so, you know, and it actually affects how I set up my bow too, to be honest with you, Um, you know, because I'll use, you know, I use a single pin and I'll set it at 26 yards. But when I set it at 26 yards, that's my yardage. Whenever I shoot at 30 yards, I'm three inches low um, at 30 yards. That way I know now at an angle all I need to do is hold, hold my pin on the, on the spot that I want to hit on the deer from zero to 30 yards. And I'll be in the wheelhouse because at 30 yards, I'm expecting them to, to react. And so if they yeah. drop six inches, I'm still on the top of the lungs and it's a kill shot. You know what I mean? If I'm holding it on the heart or whatever center mass of the lungs. And if I'm close and I have the high angle shot, it's like, it's going to give me that, um, I'm going to hit, it's going to hit a little higher than where I'm holding to and And that's what I want because of the high angle. Right. So if they're right underneath of me, so it kind of gives me the best of both worlds, a buddy of mine who owns a, an arrow company, that's how he sets his bow up for that exact reason. And he kind of shared that, you know, that tip with me and it made a world of difference of like not holding off, holding on and stuff like that. That way just removes one more thing that I have to remember to do. You know, whenever a deer shows up, I know if it's inside 30 yards, it's grip it and rip it. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So, man, I, I want to ask you about you know this. This is kind of like from a traveling aspect, right? Because I feel like when people are looking for sign in the big woods, if they've not experienced it in the big woods, you know, had a hunting experience in the, in the big woods when they when they head there and they start scouting and stuff like that. If you if you don't have if you don't know or you've not experienced it or someone hasn't shared with you, it was something for. I remember whenever I kind of, you know, recognized this, that the sign that I would see in the big woods was significantly less than I would find in other places. Even though I knew in this one particular area I was hunting, I had a couple Boone and Crockett caliber deer on camera and the sign that was being laid down, you would have swore it was a forkhorn, you know, and then in Pennsylvania you have, you know, there's just a lot more sign kind of concentrated in areas. Can you talk about the amount of sign that you see, you know, when you're in the Adirondacks versus when you might travel out of state somewhere and how you kind of decipher that differently? Uh, I, to be honest, most places I hunt out of state, I see a lot more sign just because there are mm-hmm. a lot more. And there are like a lot of people think you can go to the Midwest and just shoot like big bucks behind, behind every tree. Which <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's pretty difficult. You won't find too many people who are successful killing big deer, you know, regularly in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that hunt on land that are from out of state. Yep. Unless they have, you know, like, unless they don't work during hunting season. And uh, like when I go away Midwest, like, I mean, I focus on those areas, you know, where I find, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be big rubs or anything like that. Just, uh, you know, big deer tracks, um, a lot of deer traffic mm-hmm. because 
Midwest, there are more mature deer, probably mature bucks in smaller areas. So if you can find a lot of deer traffic and you're there during, you know, the rut, which most people, that's when most people go, um, the more deer traffic is going to, you know, tow in more mature deer because they're running after does and stuff. Um, whereas like up North, if I find like active sign up there, um, I don't really look for rubs a whole lot just because many areas that I hunt, they just don't rub a lot of trees. Um, I don't know why, but a lot of the areas I hunt just don't have a lot of rubs. And so I just basically look for, uh, I'm just a scrape hunter really. And then, uh, I hunt a lot of edges, whether it's like swamp edge, um, you know, beaver pond edge, um, like softwood to hardwood, um, you know, like maybe a burn off area, like, you know, lightning might've hit someplace and burn an area off. Um, in the Midwest, you have a lot of, you know, a lot of different places do prescribed burns, um, you know, places where they prescribe burns and it has an edge, uh, between like private land and public land, you know, a lot of times there's an edge rock wall, uh, you know, stuff like that. So that's kind of, as I, as I go out searching, that's kind of what I search for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, two things I had to get used to was whenever I would hunt the big woods, I had to get used to and understand that small sign in the big woods oftentimes was a lot more meaningful than, than, than I had first anticipated. Cause to your point, like you just don't get as, you just don't get as much of it. Right. And then in, inversely when I, for example, when I was in Iowa, um, there was sign that like would make me have a heart attack in Pennsylvania. But for that area, it was like average. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the big primary scrape area that I found out there that I ended up missing that deer on. Like I probably walked past like 12 different scrapes that I would have gladly stopped and hunted in Pennsylvania, you know? And it was just oh, yeah. contextualizing, you know, where I was at and what the expectation is of the sign, you know, and what it means um, for the area that I was in, you know? And I think sometimes people struggle with that, you know, if they haven't gone if they haven't hunted a variety of places in their, in their, in their hunting past. That's another thing I've learned over the years too. Like, uh, I've been with friends before and I'll see a small rub in the, you know, it's a little tiny tree, like the size of my pinky or something. Mm-hmm. And he has either ripped out of the ground or it's, it's shredded like in two, like, like not shredded as in like bark shredded, but like the trees ripped in two and it's, yeah. it's kind of and stuff like that. Like nine times out of 10, that's a long time deer. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, the tree got caught in the tines of the deer and either ripped it out of the ground or, you know, and the deer might just be going around doing that because the rack might be so narrow right? Uh, that it can't rub big trees, you know? And, yeah. uh, like, so I look for a lot of stuff like that. And, uh, I know that a lot of people overlook that and they're like, oh, it's a little fork horn or, you know, a little spike horn. And I'm like, eh, well, maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was one of my buddies is uh he hunts a lot of swamps and it was one thing I hunt I scouted with him last year. And that's one thing too that I always like to do. I like to scout with different people if I get the opportunity to because I just like to see how they diagnose things and pick up stuff from him and um my buddy's a really good hunter and I I'd never had a chance to scout with him. So we went out last year and we were going through this area that was kind of swampy. It was on the top of this this mountain and there was there were some reeds up there. And he's following like these reeds and I'm like, I was trying to figure out what he was doing. And 
I finally just asked him, I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Cause I didn't see any sign anywhere. He's like, you see these reeds that are strewn out here. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, well, he's like, you know, reeds don't get stuck in, in spikes racks. And I was like, Oh, good point. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So it was just, yeah. And I never thought of it before, but I haven't hunted a lot of swamps until I, you know, lived in this area and he's hunted swamps pretty much all growing up. And so it totally made sense. Like he was following a, a deer clearly got it stuck in its, in its rack and was, they were falling out as he was walking. So he was falling to figure out where that deer was going. And then he ended up picking up some rubs a little later and, and proved his point. So well played. <laughs> There you go. All right. But man, I know yeah. I've, I've kept you on here for almost two hours. I want to be sensitive to your time. I appreciate you coming on here. But before I do that, there's one last question I want to ask you. It's something I've started asking people because I'm just curious. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, if you had to make a three, and I'm stealing this from my buddies from Exodus. They asked me this when I was on their podcast and I just thought it was a great question. And I was like, eh, I want to end my podcast this way sometimes. Um, <laughs> So if you were building a team for a, a three person basketball tournament, three on three tournament, right. And you had to pick, and it was between hunters, their basketball skills don't matter. It's more of like how good they are as a hunter. Right. And you had to build the best three person team of hunters that you possibly could. Who would those three hunters be in your mind? I'd pick myself, my friend, Brian, and my father. It's a great answer. And I'm going to guess, like, are those also the guys who have had the, uh, the most influence on you as well? Uh, my father has had the most influence in me and Brian is the only person I've ever found who has the same motivation and drive that I do. Nice. That's awesome, man. And like you said earlier, finding a good hunting partner is key. Um, I, I, I count myself fortunate that I got my buddy, Chad, who's kind of my road dog. We do all of our travel hunts and stuff together. Um, sounds like Brian is that for you. And, uh, I always say, man, when you find that person, you hold them near and dear cause they're, they're, they're more valuable than gold in my book. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, if I could just go on a hunt with other people, well, that would be different. But if I, if my success depends on somebody, they're, they're the people I'm picking. Right. That's awesome, man. Well, buddy, I appreciate you coming on before I let you get going, let people know out there listening where they can find out more about you and, uh, where they can follow your, uh, your, your hunting adventures. Uh, well, to be honest, I don't, I mean, I used to have a fairly big presence on social media. I don't do a whole lot of it anymore. Um, I, I keep telling myself I'll probably begin doing it again, but I never really do. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, on Instagram, it's uh, Todd underscore Mead. And you can find me on Facebook. It's just my name. And I got an elk on the, I think, on my profile picture. And uh, then you can find me on my website. And it's just my name.com. Yep. And then you you have some uh, some books people, folks can pick up. I've recently read the uh, Pursuing Public Land Bucks killer book, especially for anyone out there who is, you know, considering travel hunting and, and is maybe, um, you know, feels it's a daunting task to kind of take that on, you know, Todd does a great job in this book kind of breaking down how to, how to take that task on and, uh, and find success. So I would definitely advise folks to pick that book up if you're a DIY public land hunter looking to travel. So buddy, I appreciate your time, man. I feel like we could do this again. I could talk to you for another two hours. So we'll have to try find some time here in the, uh, in the not so distant future and catch up again. We'll have to get you into the Adirondacks. We'll show you what it's like. Hey, you don't have to twist my arm, buddy. I have, I have a, I have a trailer and we'll travel my friend. <laughs> oh, I got 
you don't you don't need your trailer. You can stay right in a nice warm camp. <laughs> there you go, man. I appreciate you. Well, you have yourself a good night, man. I appreciate your time. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.